0: According to uh, researchers at Erasmus University, from their work uh, published in 2015, holding a grudge can weigh you down literally. Participants in this study were asked to write about a time when they had experienced conflict. And some were instructed to reflect on a time when they didn't forgive that offender. And others in this study were asked to think about a time when they did forgive the person who had hurt them or offended them. And then the third group, I don't understand this one, and the third group were to write about a relatively dull social interaction. I don't know how they rated that. I don't know if you've ever had a dull social interaction. Okay, all three groups were asked... uh, And given a challenge to jump as high as they could five times without bending their knees. I don't know how they did it without bending their knees. But they had to jump as high as they could five times. And uh, after repeating this twice, researchers found those who were thinking about forgiveness while they were jumping. After they had just reflected on this. Jumped on the average of 11.5 uh, inches. You may want to write that down. And the next group that were thinking about a conflict that they had where they had not forgiven the person that had offended them averaged only 8.5 inches. Researchers found this extremely significant. There was no significant difference in the jumps in the non forgiveness group and the neutral conditions. In a similar experiment, people who'd been set up to think about a time that they had held a grudge estimated that a hill was steeper than the group who thought about forgiveness. They didn't think it looked nearly as steep as the other group did. The lead researcher concluded that the weight of carrying a grudge may be more than a metaphor. He concluded a state of unforgiveness is like carrying a heavy burden. A burden that victims bring with them when they navigate the physical world. Forgiveness can lighten this world. In another survey in the Atlantic published in 2014, a Danish study asked 10,000 people ages 36 to 52 this question. In your everyday life, do you experience conflicts with the following people? Your partner, like your wife or your husband or significant other? Do you experience conflicts with your children? Do you experience conflicts with other family members? Do you experience conflicts with your friends? Or do you experience conflicts with your neighbors? Eleven years later, they found that 422 of them were dead. The good news is nobody was murdered. Um, And this was considered a typical rate of death for the average population. Researchers noted that people who answer the always or often in any of these cases were two or three times more likely to be among the dead. That holding a grudge can be deadly. The standard causes of death were things like cancer, heart disease, alcohol-related liver disease, etc., Researchers concluded that uh, stressful social relationships are associated with increased mortality risk among middle-aged men and women. So here's what we've learned. Lack of forgiveness may lead to an early death. It's going to affect your ability to how high you can jump, and it's going to make hills seem steeper. So just take note of that. In my experience, some people have a really difficult time with conflict, and they do everything possible to avoid conflict. In my experience, there are few people who love conflict and find great joy in finding ways to win. Most of us probably are in a middle range where we try to figure out how we're going to navigate, how we're going to resolve this, how we're going to continue uh, moving forward in life. One thing for sure is Christians have conflict, and the Bible gives us some examples of how uh, conflict has been handled. Last week in Acts 15, we saw that the church in Jerusalem faced a major conflict, and it was a doctrinal conflict. And right away, you know, there's a It's going to just turn that off. It's doctrinal. I mean, who wants to talk about doctrine? That's dry and boring. Sometimes it is. But those things get personal too. You know, when somebody disagrees you disagrees with you in a very intense, personal way. This was such a huge conflict in Acts 15 in the early that the church stopped missionary endeavors. They just put everything on hold. And sent all their key leaders to Jerusalem to deal with this. Acts 15 is sometimes called the Jerusalem Council, we noted that. And uh, this probably happened around 49 AD. So think in terms of how far it is from the life of Jesus around 30 AD. And um, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas had just completed their first missionary journey, and it took about two years. And so uh, let's look at that first missionary journey. Just There's some people here waiting for the map, and they won't understand anything I say until we have a map. So Jerusalem is down at the bottom of your screen. That's where the church got its start. It was a Jewish church from the beginning, Jewish believers. The gospel got started with uh, thousands of Jewish people gathering in Jerusalem. Okay, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas started their missionary activity, their first missionary journey. Uh, If you go straight up north to Antioch in Syria, that was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, and it will become the strongest church, and it has financial resources, and it's going to become a missionary church. And they sent out Paul and Barnabas. So they dropped down to Seleucia, which is the seaport. Antioch was inland, Seleucia was the seaport. They went to Cyprus, first to the city of Salamis, then Paphos. Then they went to uh, Perga, and then to Pisidian Antioch, two Antiochs. Then they went to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and then they turned around and retraced their steps and went back to Antioch. And then in Antioch, they find out there's this huge doctrinal crisis, so they go back to Jerusalem um, for this huge meeting gathering all these big names, Peter spoke, Paul and Barnabas spoke, the Apostle James spoke, and then we come to our passage this morning, we're going to begin in verses uh, 15 through uh, 22, resolution for doctrinal conflict. So we're going to start with the resolution, but let's remind uh, you of the conflict, and that uh, comes in verses 1 and 2. Chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now, some men came down from Judea to Antioch. Remember, they came down, but they actually went north because Judea was a higher elevation. They came down to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were making a new rule, not anywhere in Scripture, not anywhere in Jesus' teaching, about how to be saved, and they're saying, you got to be circumcised. This brought Paul and Barnabas, verse 2, into a sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem, went south up to Jerusalem, to see the apostles and elders about these questions. Then they had this long discussion, and um, that's what we looked at last week. And now we come to... um, Verse 22, so there's a huge crisis for the gospel. Um, Some were saying you must be circumcised to be saved. Is that true? The answer is no. Was it right? No, but it was a crisis. And remember, the New Testament has not been written. We've got the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They have the apostles. Um, So the good news is, God, this is the gospel, God offers forgiveness by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's good news. It's nothing about circumcision. It's nothing about doing good works. It's nothing about keeping the law of the Old Testament, which is 613 commandments. It's believing in Jesus and accepting the offer of forgiveness by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who died for our sins. He took, we deserve the death. He took our death. He was our substitute. He took our place. And that's good news. God's requirement is to believe, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he died for you, he was buried, and he was raised again. We have the resurrection proof of his victory. And the great news is he is alive today. He was resurrected, he ascended into heaven. Jesus Christ is alive. And, well, a lot of people forget that. Even believers forget that. Okay, verse 22. The letter carriers. My dad was a letter carrier, but not quite like this. Verse 22. Then the apostles and elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch. These are the letter carriers. With Paul and Barnabas, they chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. So the leadership was totally unified in agreement. The apostles, the elders, the brothers, the church, they were all together in this conclusion that they had reached. They're going to send a letter. It's going to go out to all the churches. It's going to have the stamp of the apostles on it. It's going to be, okay, churches, here's the... The final decision. Here's clarity on this issue when, when, when questions are brought up. So they decided to send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. They chose Judas and Silas. Judas and Silas had already been leaders in the church in Jerusalem. They're going to go sort of as eyewitnesses and confirm all the things that happened at the council and to confirm that Paul and Barnabas' ministry as bonafide is good and what they're saying is right and true. Verse 23, the senders and the recipients. This is a very common way, sending a sender in the ancient world. With them, they sent the following letter, the apostles and the elders and your brothers. This is who the letter is from. To the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, this is who the letter is to. And um, I think we have a map, sure enough. So the council is in Jerusalem. They're sending the letter by Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas north to Antioch and they're going down to Antioch. Okay, the letters, verses 24 through 29. The issue, verse 24, we have heard that someone out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So the the leaders here are not avoiding the issue. They're, They're taking the issue of the doctrinal conflict head on. The letter is meant to reinforce the gospel. That salvation is by faith through great, by faith, grace through faith. It's not by works. It's not by being circumcised. It's not by doing good things. It's not keeping the law of the Old Testament. The purpose, verses 25 through 27. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul. So... Uh, Notice, a little significance here, you, these are dear friends. Paul and Barnabas have been gone. Paul and Barnabas have been away. Paul was the one that persecuted the church. The, the early believers in Jerusalem were fearful of Paul. They didn't know what to think of him. Barnabas took Paul under his wing, Saul of Tarsus, and sort of made Paul acceptable to the believers in Jerusalem. And now they're dear friends. Because of the gospel. Verse 26 men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Barnabas had risked their lives. Remember, Paul had been stoned and left for dead in Lydia. Verse 27 therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. So, two eyewitnesses from the Jerusalem church to the Antioch church saying, We're Jewish believers. We are are, uh, affirming everything Paul and Barnabas are saying about the gospel. And you do not have to keep the law of Moses. And uh, you do not have to be circumcised to be saved. Paul and Barnabas are right. Uh, So we are introduced to um, Judas and Silas. verse. We're going to find out that Silas, is going. To be, his name is also going to be Silvanus. That's the Greek name for Silas. And Silas is going to become a very uh, significant player. He's going to be Paul's traveling companion in the chapters ahead. So he's taking a new role. Verses 28 and 29, the decision. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. We should just make a little bit of an observation here. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They had come to a major decision about a doctrinal issue. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. What was that about? Well, earlier in Acts 15, what happened? They brought all these leaders from all over. Uh, the the New Testament world, the Mediterranean world, they brought all these believers together. What did they do? They debated and they discussed and they talked about the gospel and they talked about what the gospel is not and they talked about false doctrine and they talked about truth and they talked about what Jesus taught them. You know, why didn't God just send an angel and say, okay, church, here's the right answer. He didn't do that. Why didn't God send a prophet and said, "The Lord Thus says the Lord? He didn't do that. He sent all of these godly leaders who traveled far and wide to get to Jerusalem to make a decision together that they would stand together, they would live for, and they would die for. And it seemed good to the Holy Spirit that God would bring these people together to clarify the gospel, to talk about it, to reason together. Men led by the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that we see in the book of Acts, there is a change away from that miraculous to more normal ways people walk with God. Still led by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But not everything happens miraculously more and more gets to be what we would call normative in the book of Acts. And that's what we have in Acts 15. God chose to work through this meeting. The Holy Spirit guided the group. The decision had the stamp of approval of the Holy Spirit. Verse 29, here's the decision. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. From blood, from meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You do well to avoid these things. So that's all the instruction the Gentiles get. And um, this is a restatement of what James said in Acts 15 verses 19 through 21. The issues were food and blood and meat sacrificed to idols... These related to ceremonial laws in the book of Leviticus and the sexual immorality is clearly a moral issue that applies to all people. The goal of the letter was not to make it difficult for Gentiles to come to faith and also to ask Gentiles not to offend uh, their Jewish people with their freedom, to uh, honor the Jewish perspective in their community, to 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 be willing to limit some of their choices for the sake of the gospel. I don't know if that makes uh, perfect sense. Um, a lot of debate about what, what what. Why did they tell them to abstain from food sacrificed to idols? How would you like? Do you want that rule? You don't even know where your food comes from all the time, from blood, from meat, from. Of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. One writer notes that there's a practice in some uh, ancient uh, pagan religions where an animal was brought to this place of worship and it was strangled right on the spot. And then um, it, its head was removed and the, the, they drained the blood and then they drank the blood in this service. And then they sacrificed the animal to an idol, and then they uh, were involved in um, a temple with a temple prostitute, an act, a reenactive ancient ancient fertility rites through a sexual practice in a temple, and that that was also a legitimate practice. So whatever the case is. The leaders in Jerusalem are telling the Gentiles, here's a way, here's some things that you can do so that you not offend your Jewish brothers or people who are Jewish who have not yet come to faith. If you want people to listen to the gospel, here is a way you can limit. You may have freedom to eat what you want, but for the sake of the gospel, in your case, Consider limiting your freedom in these areas. Um, the resolution is delivered in verses thirty through thirty-five. The delivery, verse thirty. So the men were sent off and went down uh, to Antioch. They went up, or they went down. They went north to Antioch, and they gathered the church together. You know, they delivered the letter. So they got the whole church. They had a big meeting. We don't know if this is a regular meeting. And by the way, you know, they said nothing about the Sabbath. Because the Jewish people worship on Saturday, and the church worshiped on Sunday, and that wasn't even an issue. Uh, so they, they, were, they were sent, and they went to Antioch, and reception, verse 31. The people read it, and were glad for its encouraging message to them. Uh, they understood the gospel, and they were glad that they weren't going to get the 613 commands of the Old Testament. And they did want to reach people, and they were willing to put some restrictions on their freedom if it meant they could reach the Jewish people in their cities. Verses 32 and 33, the short-term ministry team, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, uh, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. Uh, they, they encouraged, they helped, they, they, um, they, they instructed them, they answered questions for them, they prayed for them. And uh, they were there to help. They were there to give believers hope. And sometimes that's what we need is just somebody to remind us to stay the course. You're on the right track. Keep walking with God. These promises are true. And they strengthened the church. Verse 33, after spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. Guess what? The church in Antioch now is going to send Silas and Judas Back to Jerusalem, where they came from. Ministry's good. Mission complete. Verse 35, the longer-term ministry team. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they had many, many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. They continued to disciple and equip the church, and the gospel was proclaimed, and God's kingdom was advancing. But... Trouble comes. The doctrinal conflict was from the outside. Now there's going to be a personal conflict on the ministry team. Verses 36 through 41. Verse 36 is the new ministry initiative. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So Paul has a great idea. Let's go back. Let's go back to every city. Let's All those people that came to faith in Christ, let's go, but then be with them. Let's help them. Let's build up the churches, and let's see where Paul wants to go on the map. He wants to go back to every church. We just had the first missionary journey. Guess what? We're going to call this the second missionary journey in the book of Acts, but it's going to take an interesting turn right here. Missionary team conflict, verses 37 and 38. First, there's Barnabas. Barnabas thinks this is a great idea. Yes, let's go back to the churches. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. That's a great idea. What's wrong with that? Paul doesn't like that idea. Who's John Mark? Well, John Mark is Barnabas' cousin. He's a young man. John Mark's mom, probably, John Mark comes from a wealthy family. Maybe John Mark's mom, family owned the home where the upper room was, where Jesus had the Last Supper with his disciples, and where the church went in Acts 1 and prayed, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. This is Barnabas' cousin, Barnabas. He's the encourager. Barnabas sees potential in young John Mark. But Paul's perspective, verse 38, is different. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in their work. Paul had a different opinion. Um, He didn't think John Mark was good for the team. John Mark was a wimp. John Mark bailed out when the going got tough. Paul is not a relational guy necessarily. Barnabas is all about relationships. You know. By the way, you know any people like this? Barnabas is all about relationships. Paul is all about the task. Let's get the job done. I don't care how you feel about it. Let's do it. Totally... A different perspective. Paul remembers Acts 13, verses 4 and 5. This is the beginning of the first missionary journey. You know, the arrows on the map there. This is the beginning. They were in Antioch. Then the two of them, Paul and Barnabas, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Cilicia. That's the seaport. And they sailed off from there to Cyprus. That's the island where Barnabas is from. When they arrived at Salamis, that's the first city, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And by the way, John was with them as their helper. This is a young, young uh, person they included. He, he was uh, going to be discipled. He was going to be mentored for leadership. He's going to become a Key player, and so let's take him along. And it's great. John was their helper. But things got a little bit tough. Acts uh, 13, uh, verse was about 12. Next slide. 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga. They left Cyprus, went to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them. To return to Jerusalem. Paul couldn't forget that. Just when we needed him, John Mark bails. We can't count on him. He is not reliable. I don't see him as a good choice. He's not trustworthy. I, I'm with Paul in this, right? But that's not Barnabas. What about this guy's future? What about his potential? I, 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 I'm for John Mark. Paul, I disagree with you. Sharp disagreement, verses 39 through 41. First we see Barnabas, verse 39. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. You know, this is one of those amazing things about the Bible. The Bible doesn't just give the fun stuff. It's real. It gives the hard stuff. What what real life is really like. They had such a sharp disagreement. Paul, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Sounds like he got mad and left. I'm not sure he was mad. He he had strong opinions. This was intense. Um, But they parted company. We don't have all the details. We just have a few of the details. There's a, a lot of time that passes here. By the way, did you know that according to a study done by Johnson and Penner, who surveyed 55 Protestant mission agencies who had 100 or more overseas missionaries, the number one problem faced by missionaries is relationships with other missionaries. What do you think of that? It's like the number one problem in marriage is a relationship with your spouse. (laughs) Relationships with other missionaries. The second one was cultural adjustments. It's hard moving to a different culture, but it's not as hard as other missionaries. Managing general stress. Stress can be difficult, especially when you go to a new environment. Raising children, that has its stresses. Marriage difficulties has stresses on the missions field. Financial pressures are difficult in the missions field. Loneliness is difficult in the missions field, but not number one. The number one issue is personal relationships of one missionary to the other. It can be like that in the church, too. One Christian to another Christian, serving in ministry. So they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Let's see the map. So they're in Antioch. They have to go down to Seleucia to get on the boat. That's the seaport. And they head for Cyprus. Barnabas is from Cyprus, and he has his cousin, John Mark, with him. Now we see Paul's decision, verse 40 and 41. But Paul chose Silas and left. Now that wasn't easy because, do you remember where Silas is? He just went back to Jerusalem. So, you know, there's a time period happening here. And Paul calls Silas back to Antioch. Paul chose Silas. Commended by the believers... To the grace of the Lord, the church in Antioch was supportive of these men, of these leaders, even though they have a sharp disagreement. And he, that is Paul, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And I already said that Silas is also Silvanus, and he is going to become a key player um, He's going to be key in writing First and Second Thessalonians. He's going to be key in First Peter. Um, he's going to be a key companion of the Apostle Paul. And he's going to be a help to the Apostle Peter later in life. Paul is headed out now with Silas. Barnabas has gone. Barnabas and Paul will not be together on a trip in the book of Acts. John Mark disappears now from the scene. Now we move and follow Paul's ministry. doesn't mean their ministry is over. Later, uh, Paul will write that uh, Barnabas... And Barnabas was a great help to Paul. Barnabas was the one who helped salvage Saul of Tarsus when he went into Jerusalem. Um, And John Mark will become extremely valuable to the Apostle Paul in later years. Why? Because Barnabas discipled him and, t- and took him and, and uh, didn't leave him by the side. Um, so let's look at Paul's. So what we have, we have Barnabas and um, John Mark going down to Cyprus and we have Paul going uh, through Syria and Cilicia. What's that all about? Well, we had one team, now we have two teams. Huh. Who thought of that? So, uh, let's talk about some lessons. By the way, who was right? Paul Abrams. probably Might depend on whether you're primarily a task person or primarily a relation. Do you see potential or do you see that the, we've got to accomplish the task? It has a lot to do with how we come at conflict. And I would suggest that perhaps they're both right. I think it's possible to have... I think Barnabas's view was valid. I think Paul's view was valid. The big issue is, how do you resolve this? This is, you know, how do you do this in marriage? I try to talk about conflict in premarital counseling. Some of you remember that. That conflict is normal. You've got... Uh, Two people who God made differently, who have different backgrounds, different educational experiences. And they come to the same issue and they see it differently. And oftentimes what they see is valid. It's not right or wrong. It's valid. Next question is, is how do you navigate the decision or an issue like that without trying to defeat your partner, your co-worker? How do you reach a resolution? How do you resolve conflict? We'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Uh, here's some lessons. Lessons uh, from Acts 15. Sometimes a Christ follower should limit his or her personal freedom for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes you, a Christ follower, should limit your personal freedom for the sake of the gospel. This is what the Gentile believers did for the Jewish believers and for those Jews had not yet come to faith in Christ. They saw this as a way that we can be above approach with our neighbors. And uh, though we might be free to do certain things, we're willing, if this will help advance the gospel, we're, we're willing to say, hey, I, I can go without this for now. Uh, Let's not use our freedom to intentionally offend those who aren't yet followers of Christ. Um, Ajith Fernando, uh, who is um, one of the commentators in the book of Acts, writes about his experience growing up in Sri Sri Lanka, where believers in Sri Lanka choose uh, not to, to use alcohol. They may be free to use alcohol, but they choose not to. One of the reasons is because in uh, where they live, the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Muslims all f- see the uh, al- use of alcohol as wrong and inappropriate. So not to offend, even though they're free, not to offend them, the believers there choose not to use alcohol. The Apostle Paul Uh, applied this to his own life. We've seen this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19 through 23. On several occasions, Paul writes, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible to the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Jews, he said, I became like a Jew. Um, He's willing to keep the law. He understood the law. He could do it. And still know that he's saved by grace through faith that he needs to walk in the power of the holy spirit he's willing to make a vow in the temple in Jerusalem he even made sacrifices for the vows he'd made in Jerusalem if not required to to the Jews i became like a Jew to win the Jews to those under the law to win the like one under the law though i myself am not under the law why so as to win those under the law next slide To those not having the law, the Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. Now, that would be much harder for a Jewish person with a Jewish background to become like a Gentile. Though I am not free from God's law, but under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people. It was by his choice. He wasn't wishy-washy. He wasn't a wimp. He made clear decisions how he would write for the sake of the gospel so that by all possible means I might save some. Last slide there. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. So all I'm saying is Paul was willing at times to limit his freedom so that he could advance the gospel. Secondly, second lesson, conflict happens between godly people with the best intentions. Please know this. It's kind of normal. Conflict happens. Conflict is not wrong. Sometimes people think conflict is always bad. It's always sinful. It is not. It's normal. Okay? If your blood is pumping, you're going to have conflict. And if you're married, you're going to have conflict. I'm so thankful for what I've learned about conflict. Being married for all of these years, Sue, you've been such a help. <laughs> I came into marriage thinking, all I, "I'm just going to power up and win." The goal here is to win. We cannot lose a conflict. We must win. That's—I was wired from day one to believe that. Just talk louder or stand up or do something, you know, be intimidating. And that is, I found out, is very unloving. And, uh, you know, it was hurtful. And later, you know, I became a follower of Christ and I began to learn that I don't want to continue to hurt my wife. I I would like to build her up. I'd like to see her thrive. I want her to be around a long time. And um, so learning, how do I... You know, first I had to understand that conflict is normal and that I'm not always right and she's not always wrong. And she often sees something I don't see and I can learn a lot just by listening. And so um, I'm really grateful that, uh, for what I've learned about conflict. I've had more conflict than all of you, so I'm a v- veteran. Ex- conflict happens between godly people. It did with Paul and Barnabas. Um, John 17 verses 20 and 21 Jesus knew about conflict And he knew that people would have a hard time Relating to each other This was his prayer on the night before his death He says my prayer is not for them alone Meaning my disciples or the apostles I pray also for those who will believe in me Through their message and that includes us That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And what he's praying for is a unity among God's people, a relational unity that is so powerful it attracts our world. Because God made us differently, and we get together, and we can be like sandpaper rubbing each other because we're so different. And yet, then God has given us the Holy Spirit, and he's given us re- relational principles of how to do it together. This is so important in marriage, isn't it? To become one, there's relational unity. There's a oneness about marriage, and the way we treat each other is so powerful about how much unity do we have. And your marriage can be extremely attractive to your uh, friends and neighbors and coworkers. When you're able to relate and you have a oneness, no, you're not perfect. It's just you learn to relate in ways that value your partner. Conflict happens between godly people. Um, Here are some uh, relational principles to help deal with conflict that, we, that come from the New Testament. The first one is forgive quickly. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to, to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Is there somebody that you have... Um, you're, you have a relationship with that you've been offended and you've been hurt and you've not forgiven them. And here how, is how we are to relate to each other. Uh, when we don't forgive, we, we tend to get bitter. And that's not appropriate. It's something we need to deal with. We need to get rid of it. We need to confess it. We need to learn to be kind and compassionate. This can be fun in marriage when you're kind and compassionate to your mate. Um, Forgiving each other. When you forgive somebody, it doesn't mean they deserve it. It doesn't mean that what they did was right or okay. We forgive because we are instructed to forgive. It's how we relate and it's, what God is doing in us, and we do it because we've been forgiven, and now we can practice forgiveness, because we understand forgiveness and we understand the power of forgiveness. The next is to confess quickly. Own up to your own uh, mistakes. Don't try to cover up. Be humble and uh, be honest. James five sixteen. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Consider this in relational conflict. Confess your sins. Own up. You know, with your spouse, is there something you haven't dealt with? You haven't, been, you haven't owned up to something that you're responsible for? You said with your kids or with your parents, another family member. The third one is, remember the goal is not to win conflict, but resolve it. Romans twelve sixteen says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And when you're in a conflict with somebody, it sure seems like they're in the low position, and we are right. And uh, live in harmony. What, what do I need to do to be in harmony with this person I'm in conflict with? Um, Romans twelve twenty one. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the way you're going to overcome evil with good is by following God's instructions and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you're going to win, doesn't mean necessarily that the conflict gets resolved, but you need to do your part. Romans 12:17 and 18: Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible. as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, doesn't mean that this acknowledges that evil maybe has been done to you. You're not going to accomplish anything by trying to repay it. God is the one responsible for vengeance, okay? He's going to handle justice for us. As far as it depends on me, I need to be at peace. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to have peace in my outward circumstances. It's about having peace in the inner circumstances. I need to make sure I'm not the problem, I can put this whole situation into God's hand. But as far as it depends on me, I'm not going to hold the grudge. doesn't mean I have to trust somebody who's hurt me, but I do need to forgive them. Trust and forgiveness are not the same thing. Romans 14, 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And what am I saying here? These are passages that move us toward resolution. We need to resolve. We don't need to focus on winning and getting our way. Uh, third, third lesson, last one, is that God works through conflict. God worked through the conflict of Paul and Barnabas, two godly leaders who had very serious opinions. We don't know if there was sin or if somebody needed to confess or somebody needed to say they were sorry or somebody needed to forgive. Um, we know that all things work together for good for those who love him. And out of this came a multiplication of missionary teams. The gospel advanced. And all of these guys finish well and speak well of each other. Um, God works through conflict. He's going to work through your conflicts when you seek to follow his instructions. And um, God's worked through my conflicts. I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned, I get an opportunity to learn about my weaknesses and my blind spots and my shortcomings. Um, as, as you work through conflict, you can learn to be open, and that opens the door for the other person to be open. And you can build trust into your relationship. And you can, you can build a deeper sense of honesty. You can gain better communication, better understanding, and better results. You can honor God and bring credit to his name when you forgive and confess and when you seek to live in harmony. Um, God made us differently. We have different viewpoints, different histories, a different set of parents and teachers and coaches And often, another person that you care about, that you're in conflict with, brings a valid perspective. It's just not yours. It is different. How can you resolve it? How can you gain understanding? So, that's it. Acts 15. Next week will be in Acts 16. And I'd like to pray. Please join me as we pray. And let's stand together. Father, I thank you uh, that we learn about conflict and you've given instructions about how we are to relate to each other, how we are to relate as families, how we are to relate as husbands and wives, how we are to relate to each other as we serve together in the body of Christ. We acknowledge that we're not perfect and that we bring weaknesses into relationships And um, sometimes we don't understand the person we uh, are married to or the person we are serving with, and sometimes we have conflict. Help us to uh, see that conflict is something that we can resolve and that we can gain from, that we can benefit from. Father, show us right now, Are, are there people that we need to go to and ask forgiveness? Do we need to own up to something we've done or said? Do we need to extend forgiveness to someone? Do we need to stop trying to win and seek harmony or to seek peace? Show us steps that we need to take. May we grow in unity as, as a church, as families. May we honor Jesus. May our lives be attractive to people who don't know you yet. Empower us with your spirit. Give us love, joy, and peace. And help us to honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming to the bridge today. Can can you believe that summer is just about over? Next week is September. School's going to be starting. We're going to be in Acts 16 next week. And uh, we're going to meet Timothy. Maybe you've heard of him. And uh, we're going to see the gospel begin to advance on Paul's second missionary journey. So please come back. God bless you all. We're dismissed. supplication if thou iniquity